everyone, welcome to another Crowdlinker Fireside Chat. I'm Aram Mukumov, the host. Thanks for tuning in. On the show, I'm interviewing product innovation leaders who are working on big industry disruptive problems from within their organizations. Uh, the guests that I have on the show have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share about building quality digital products, staying agile, and fostering an innovation mindset. This is season two, episode number seven, and I'm here with Heran Benari to chat about his untraditional path into product management, building and scaling technology teams, emerging technologies, and their impact on product development, as well as his top insights from working with many different product organizations along the way. Iran is an experienced B2C and B2B executive leader with a proven track record in defining successful products, building cohesive cross-functional teams, and improving product development processes. Iran is currently uh, the chief platform officer at Benchsci, Benchsci, there we go, which is empowering ben, scientists. Benchsci, Benchsci. Benchsci, yeah. all right. Yeah. Which is empowering scientists with the world's most advanced biomedical artificial intelligence to run more successful experiments and on its path to reduce by 50% the time it takes to develop new drugs and bring them to patients. So very, very interesting company. Uh, previously, Iran had uh, held chief product officer roles at Top Hat, Kick Interactive, as well as a VP of product and growth roles at Rounds, Ola, Hola, Hala, <laughs> and Campfly, uh, which were all acquired. So without further ado, um, awesome having you on our show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Very excited to be here. Cool. So first question I'll ask um, is just giving us a little bit of background, introducing yourself to our audience. Um, kind of what, what you're working on now and, and where you're based. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm based here in Toronto, Canada, and I'm working for Bensai. Uh, as you said, it's a, it's a company at the intersection between, I would say, biology and bioinformatics and AI and machine learning. And it's building the world's largest biomedical experimental knowledge base of, imagine that you take lots and lots, millions and millions of records of published, publicly available, you know, experiments that science are running. Mm -hmm. And the, we ingest that into our knowledge base in a way that allows us to then provide very useful insights to scientists as they develop new medicine and new drugs. Now, um, the top, I would say 16 out of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies are already strategic partners to the company. And these are like big, large, you know, enterprise um, customers. And our company is only five years old. So I think that's, that's a fantastic place to be. Um, and I think a lot of what we do is um, really trying to articulate how we can identify lots of very useful information that when scientists make decisions around their experiments, they can leverage our knowledge base. And I'll give just one specific example. And I think that's our flagship product. When you are selecting a reagent, something that you want, a, a protein type or anything else that you want to run an experiment with, many times it's difficult for you to identify which reagent you should be choosing, right? Because there are many, many different options out there. Mm -hmm. So usually what, what happens is you maybe do some literature review, read a few articles, right? Or you may have some experience within the company itself. But Bensai allows you to have this like very macro view where you're coming and saying, okay, I, I want to choose a specific reagent for this experiment, and based on a lot of different parameters, we can surface to the scientists what is the best one to choose. 
right? And that allows them to then increase the probability that the experiments will be successful. And then that in, entails also saving lots of time, right? In that preclinical side of things, then, then develop the drugs more successfully and, you know, with a high success rate. That's, uh, that's a, it's a really interesting company. And uh, I think with what's happening today in, in, the, in the world, I think it's very timely to have this type of technology available to scientists in, in, in different shapes and forms. So very, very cool. Um, I'm sure you're excited to, be, to have recently joined this company um, as one of their new leaders. So very cool to see what, uh, what comes out of it or, or during your tenure there. Absolutely, um, yep. I wanted to ask, uh, I, I know with this company, you mentioned before that it's really, you know, an artificial intelligence, machine learning type of company. And, uh, you know, in, in your in your history, you know, previously to this role and your other roles, I know that you didn't have a, you had an untraditional path to, to product management. I believe you studied anthropology at a PhD level and you worked in both marketing and growth and uh, managed a large en engineering team in your prior roles. How did those experiences um, impact the way you approach product today? Yeah, a great question, and, and I agree. Um, <laughs> I have an untraditional path. Uh, and I think if I go back maybe 15, 16 years when I made that transition into tech, um, I just finished a master's degree in anthropology. I spent a year long doing field work um, at a school to better understand, like, you know, how, how is educational success built, engineered, so-called, right? And then in mm -hmm. my PhD that I have an unfinished dissertation I need to complete one day, um, I, I tried to understand what are the cultural determinants of spreading new technologies, right? And I looked at one, you know, very famous Google product called Google Analytics that diffused around the world very, very quickly. And mm -hmm. I tried to understand what what's behind that, right? Why is it so persuasive? Why do people use that and it's like becoming so integral to, to their work? And if I connect the dots, I think anthropology allows you to have the tools to do two things. One is to deeply, deeply understand things from the users on the end user and the customer end around how they're interpreting technology into their own mental models and how do they make sense of those technologies. So I think that's like one side of things which then allows you to then cater to what that product should look like, right? And bridge the gap between the two, between the expectation, the perceived value and the actual value. Mm -hmm. And I think the second thing is um, uh, anthropology equips you with, with tools or techniques that allows you to deeply frame a problem space in a way that makes sense not to you in the company and not to your investor necessarily, but in, in a way that makes sense to the customer him or herself. And I'll give you a very concrete example. In one of the companies that I worked for, I, I joined as a VP marketing and growth. It was Hola and it was a VPN, right? So VPN allows you to mask your, your IP. And, and when I joined the company, if you would go to their homepage, the, the, the messaging there would say, come and configure your own server, basically, right? And something according to those lines, right? Which makes a ton of sense for an engineer, right? And the company was 70 people, 68 of them were engineers, and probably by, the, by far the most educated and, and smartest people that I've, I've met until that time. Um, but it did not resonate with, with end users, right? Because most end users are not engineers. So going out to the field and speaking both with prospects, but also with existing customers, 
and very quickly getting to the point that you understand that back then Netflix was not available outside the United States, configuring a server is not the messaging. The messaging is Netflix away from home. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and I think it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a small, tiny example that with the tools that you're equipped as an anthropologist, you can go and deeply understand the, the ecosystem that you're operating in and then come back. In this particular example, it's articulating the messaging in a much better way that is easily understood by the end users, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I think more broadly, um, I'm seeing more and more, I would say, social science majors, psychologists, anthropologists, sociologists moving into tech. Um, and yeah. I think they bring a, a whole set of, of tools or a toolbox that allows them to deeply understand um, what they're building and why they're building that and why would that increase the probability that even in the version one of it, it will deliver disproportionate value to, to their end users and customers. Interesting. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say actually. I, I know more and more anthropologists, or you know, people who are coming out of school who are going into product management roles early on, um, because it's like a very key part, I think, of a successful product development to take those things into mind. Um, you know, on on what you were saying there, what's something that you um, you would have never learned? Um, along the way into your, your career, if not for that time or those like, experiences you had in your life to date? So I, I've been very fortunate in, in my previous life. As a kid, I moved uh, around a lot. So I grew up in England, Japan, Singapore, and in Israel. And I think it forced me to be very, um, almost like humble by design, that I don't know the answers to things. Because <laughs> the way you eat even a dinner, right, in each one of these countries is very different. But what's the concept of a dinner is even very different in each one of these countries. So it actually pushed me to become an anthropologist, right, and actually try and, and be very, like, aware that I'm an observer on the users and the customers. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not them, right? And mm -hmm. having that distance, I think, also helped me many times when I joined companies um, especially, I would say, you know, collaborating with engineers, sometimes they have a really cool technology or they have a solution in mind, but they're not actually solving the right problem, right? So having that distance, I think that came through both my childhood, but also my upbringing in, in anthropology. And I think the second thing is, again, it's the tools themselves, right? How do you frame a good qualitative research question? How do you match the right research method to the question you're asking? How do you know that you have enough so-called statistical significance in qualitative data. What's that saturation level, right? And there are all kinds of heuristics and all kinds of techniques that allow you to have almost like quantitative, analytic, um, I would say, confidence in the qualitative data um, while still relying on a very small sample size, but still extrapolating that to a larger audience, which I think allows to speed up a lot of decision-making within product management. Very interesting. Um, I know you've worked at a lot of different companies in different roles, but let's kind of just fast forward to um, the current role at, uh, at, uh, at Benchsci. So as a chief platform officer, I know you're involved in like, helping them scale their engineering, their product R&D, and more, maybe more specifically their science teams. Um, but before that, you were managing, I think, 40 people at Kick and over 120 people at Top Hat. Um, what have you learned along the way about building 
and scaling teams um, from those prior roles? Um, I would say a few different things. That scaling is difficult, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and also you need to constantly have realistic expectations around what you're um, expecting to have and by which time horizon from that scaling exercise, right? And we had some conversations, you know, just before the call around the, the companies I work for are not Amazon, right? We're not scaling into hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. The scaling that I went through was, you know, from 50 to 100 or from, right, from 100 to 300. Um, and I think that's an inflection point from multiple different vectors of what used to be in that startup to what it is becoming, right, as a more mature company, right, transition. And I think... The scaling is an umbrella term to um, a lot of changes. And I'll, I'll, I'll just pick a few to, to make it more tangible. One is you're moving basically from a very command and control centralized decision making where the founder, the CEO, the VP product are involved in every single definition, right? Or design reviews or setting the, the specific OKRs or the key results on an individual level or a team level to a place where suddenly this does not scale. <laughs> you need to paralyze efforts and you need to push down decision-making. And many times that's very, very difficult, right? People are afraid because the moment you lose control or right, you're pushing down, you're not controlling, you're not controlling, you can't control your own destiny, right? And that's very frightening for, for people who are accustomed to and build the success of their company up to that point through control, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's like one element. The second element is there is an expectation in one of the companies that I worked for that you know we we just doubled the number of engineers on the team, that the productivity will also double overnight, and it doesn't <laughs> because um, for all kinds of different reasons. One is. Does the architecture layer actually allow for many more engineers to work in parallel without being dependent on each other? Question number one. Question number two, is it very clear what each one should be doing? Not always, so maybe you have mission statements. And then how do you manage you know, and make sure that the quality is not jeopardized as a result, right? And suddenly you have much more controls around the quality. When you deploy and release, there's a whole set of things that need to happen. And it's not just, oh, I just call my buddy and we just deploy or release something, right? So I think there's a lot of, of that as well. Um, and I think there's a third set of challenges, uh, which is the moment you move from, move from generalists to specialists, um, there is much more need to define roles and responsibilities in a very, very clear-cut manner. Mm -hmm. Now, that is very tricky because of two reasons. One is that transition from generalist to specialist is not clear cut, right? You, you start to bring more and more people so that you have more specialists, but you still have generalists. So making that transition from a, a people management perspective and a psychological perspective is, is difficult, right? So I think that's one level. And the second level, even if we have engineering level number two in three different teams, right? Three different people, they also have, it also means that these are people that have spikes, perhaps, in different areas, right? So you can't just slap a one-size-fits-all process on all teams. And engineering number two in, in team number one is very strong in process, mm -hmm. right? Engineering number two in team number two 
is very strong in you know problem solving from a tech side right and then on, on the third one maybe has a, a different spike so how do you blend them with the right counterparts in product in design in subject matter experts right project management maybe others to then have each one continue to have the spikes but create that sum that is larger than its parts right a cohesive team I think that's that's where you need to over-index on, not necessarily on standardizing the process across all different teams, which I've seen quite a few times across different companies, and I think that's perhaps one of the pitfalls. I hope that answers your question. Beautifully. It it, it answers it very well. Thank you. I, I wanted to ask a, a, a follow-up question to that. Was um, You mentioned that in some of the companies that you work with, they had that, you know, command and control, as you said, I think it was like a top-down approach. How did you navigate successfully through that type of culture to during that transition, maybe when that company was maybe going more flat or more spread? Um, you know, what, what, what strategies or what um, things did you try to uh, adopt in order to make that a successful kind of transition? Great question. Um, and I don't think I have all the right answers, right? Um, I have lots of scars of things that I, I tried and failed, but perhaps also things that, that worked. Let me try with the work because I think it's a shorter list. <laughs> <laughs> it's deeply understanding what is the root concern of someone who's, who's at, at a point where they need to let go, right? Mm -hmm. If it's, look, I'm accountable to the board and I need to right, show progress on a month-over-month -month basis, right? And, you know, my credibility there is already, like, shaken. That's a very different scenario from, I'm just not used to do this. I don't know how to do something else, right? And I think starting there is very, very helpful in, again, identifying the problem helps you then come up with the right solution. So spending time in assessing that is very, very helpful and has helped me repeatedly. That's one thing. The second is, which I think it's a cliche by now, but start small, <laughs> prove success, and then expand. So, for example, making the transition from you know functional teams or small teams into cross-functional teams, start with a pilot, with one team only, identify the right change agents, treat it as a learning process, right? Yeah. Have very clear, I would say, mutual sets of expectation what success looks like, both within the team, but also between the team and senior leadership and management, then manage that process accordingly to show ongoing progress towards that. And I think the more you go through those transitions, the more you can really like pinpoint what matters the most to the relevant stakeholder, and then also manage something which is realistic to achieve. And the moment you show that, then suddenly people are like, oh, okay, we see all the benefits that come yeah. together with that and we can scale and then it's easier, right? It's not, right? But other than that, you know, I tried many, many other things that, you know, probably failed. <laughs> Can, because um, it was one of my questions I wanted to ask, I, you know, I, I know during that growth and scaling and, you know, joining new companies, what were the things that didn't work? Like any frameworks that you tried or approaches that kind of fell on their face that maybe you could share? Yeah, or very early on, I, as, as I said, alluded to earlier on, I, I tried to slap a one size fit all model. I spent time assessing and I said, okay, I think this is the blueprint that everyone needs to follow. Mm -hmm. And because of the people, because of that, that's one aspect to it, it didn't work. 
Another aspect which I think is really, really important when you start thinking about scaling and different teams focusing on different surface areas within your product is what's the level of ambiguity in the problem space? Because if you're trying to build or rebuild a billing system, that has been done thousands of times, right? So I don't think there's a lot of ambiguity. It may be technically difficult, right? But it's still clear what you need to do. It's just going and executing according to a plan. But if you're trying to innovate and create something that the world has not seen before, then you will probably push through much more ambiguity and lack of clarity. And the team needs a different operating system or operating manual that allows them to fail fast, to validate things, right? And right, it's much less of a classic you know, project planning and deliverables that you need to deliver on a specific timeline. So I think just having that you know, almost like these two very important variables, the people that you will be working on within the team, what's the level of experience, what are their spikes, does the team have a cohesive, right, ability, who should you be speaking with, it doesn't have to be a product manager, who should you be speaking with about the strategy, right, it can be a, a very strong designer, or maybe strong, very strong engineer, mm-hmm. that's one aspect, and I think the second aspect is almost like putting this on a vector, um, on a continuum between this, this problem has been solved many, many other times, and this problem is being solved for the first time, right? And this is true innovation. And where does the projects fall on that? And then start thinking about what's the right operating manual for that particular team and have that flexibility. Awesome. Okay. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are going to really appreciate that knowledge. Thank you for sharing that. Um, wanted to, uh, maybe piggyback off what you were saying there in terms of uh, that solutioning around a lot of uh, problems has been done, I think, repeatedly in uh, different organizations. Technology, in my opinion, is quite commoditized these days. Um, So I want to kind of shift uh, the conversation towards like the future in terms of um, where do you see things going? Um, I think you mentioned the past that, you know, the period of it's difficult to build a product, you know, is is gone. And, you know, you mentioned that the, the book Lean Startup is mandatory in many ways to know, but insufficient as well. So in, in your opinion, I wanted to ask what what's like the next wave of product leaders uh, that will, you know, come to be and how will it change the way that we build products? So first of all, I have immense respect to Lean Startup, and I think it's, it, it is absolutely mandatory, so I don't want anyone to misunderstand <laughs> my, my intent there. But maybe let me try and, and explain, right? I think we, we're going through waves, right? And the waves become faster, and they're coming our way faster and faster, right? Um, and I think when you look at the last big wave and what's the next big wave, right? Um, the last big wave allowed us with, I think, AWS, now Azure, Google Cloud, others just make things much easier to build and significantly decrease the costs. And as a result, I think um, it's no, no longer a cliche to say two people in a garage can actually build a really good product right, and mm-hmm. launch it. Um, now, I'm not underestimating the complexity of building sophisticated complex products, but I'm saying getting to a place where you have something which is working and pushing it out on an app store, I think, and we see it that you know there's an exponential increase in the number of apps that are delivered to these marketplaces. What we are missing is that 
it's still the same people, right? So what you're fighting for is their attention. Yeah. And I think that's one big problem. And that's why I also think, you know, there's lots of room for PLG where it basically marries together on the one hand, the, the product and the value proposition together with the acquisition strategy, right? In a way that also allows you to monetize, but also to bring in the right people in. And, you know, before that it was growth and other things. So I think that's like one element that we need to take into consideration when you think about how the ecosystem has evolved. So the attention, right? It's the attention economy. I think that the second part is that because there's, there are so many products out there and because it, it's becoming easier to build up products, the ones that actually surface up and are being adopted are, are the ones that are differentiated and create such a superior and differentiated user experience. For many, many users, right? And I think that's why well, when I read Lean Startup, I think the principles there, which is go out and validate things, is absolutely correct. But assuming that, you know, an MVP will capture, right, a significant portion of the market share, yes, if it's a zero to one experience in a sense that there's nothing out there today, right? And you're solving mm -hmm. a very, very big problem. So if even if your product is imperfect, but still delivering disproportionate value, absolutely. But I think we have less and less of those, <laughs> in a sense. And the bar around the experience is going up and up and up and up. And as a result, I think it, it, it's easier to build, but it's more difficult to drive the adoption through really, really good experiences. Now, the experiences are based on the number of iterations you can run. And now, if you don't get the initial adoption, because it's more difficult from an attention perspective, how do you get that validation to build a really superior experience, right? It's a chicken and egg problem. So I think that's like the, where, where we are right now. Now, I think if we're looking fast forward, I think we have additional waves coming our way, right? And, you know, everybody knows about, you know, many years ago, we called it big data. Now we call it AI and machine learning. And we're on the spectrum from moving from a one size fit all product to a fully personalized and customized, you know, product per person almost, right? With advanced data and analytics, that's another way to differentiate your experiential layer. And, and we have additional, you know, waves of technology like robotics, or RPA, robotics processing automation, which also I think allows to speed up a lot of things just by taking a lot of the drudgery work or a lot of the administrative work that is involved in different facets of an organization to, again, make things easier for the average engineer, right? Mm -hmm. In a sense, when they develop, you know, especially large scale enterprise solutions. Yeah, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to ask about that because um, I've been closely following like the whole no code movement, for example, and you know, with, with robotic process automation and companies like a UiPath and whatnot, but like with the no code movement specifically, you know, you have companies like Webflow uh, that you could build an entire website now without an engineer. Um, and then you have companies like Bubble uh, that recently raised, I think, a hundred million uh, because you could ha build out your own application with no with no code uh, platform. So it's it's very exciting. It's kind of <laughs> scary, you know, to be honest, with for companies like ours. Who build product in on the in the fear that we might get obsolete you know so like we're always trying to stay at the forefront but 
the question I, I have is like, how can, um, how can product managers really, um, stay at the forefront of a lot of these technologies and work alongside them by like actually leveraging to them, to their use. Um, like I've seen some product managers actually have to go and learn some of these tools themselves, like bubble and things like that, because, you know, a client asks for a quick MVP or something, you know, it's a great way for a PM to just go and do it themselves. Um, so I'm curious of, to get your feedback on that because like, is there scalability issues on no code solutions over time when you start growing um, and whatnot? Yeah, so I'm far from an expert in this in this space. So I'll just give you <laughs> my very amateur answer. Now, I think there's a distinction between low code and no code. I think no code is addressing a different problem. It's mm -hmm. people who want to develop these apps and experiences, but simply are not technically savvy or don't want to spend the time to become so. So I think that's like no code. Um, and that comes ma many times with limited ability or flexibility in whatever you're building. Mm -hmm. um, I also think there's low code and low code I think does cater to some segments that are more technically savvy. And I think it allows at, at certain points in time, right? Allows many engineers to um, perhaps democratize the engineering side of things exactly. There's an opportunity for that. But still, I see many times that, you know, you start the solution there and then, you know, the engineer then basically takes that and builds up a whole right code on top of that that allows that to then be plugged into enterprise solutions and other things like that. Um, so I think, I think that's like, you know, a first distinction there that is, I think, important to, to make. I also think that if you look at the market today, there's shortage in, in what talent? Engineering talent, right? It's not yeah, that companies that go shortage, down. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think it's the companies necessarily want to go to low code and no code solutions many times. And mm. um, it's more out of if only we could have hired faster and more engineers, fantastic. But given yeah. that we can't, what, what is a, you know, almost like second best solution? And if that allows us to go through rapid validation, right, around almost like almost like a real product, right, and it's a spectrum between the 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 wireframe, the mock-up, the prototype, the live prototype, and then now we have no code and low code, right, right up to the full product. It allows you to add additional layer of functionality to a live prototype, which allows, I think, for further layer of validation from a product management perspective, which I think could be very, very helpful to speed up again, things, get them to the market with a higher confidence. It's actually hitting the mark. No, it's very true. I, I think you're right. The, the, the talent is, is I think a culprit <laughs> that a lot of people are going to these no code and low code solutions because like, like shit, I got to do this myself. I got to figure it out. Right. Nobody else is uh, available. Um, Iran, I wanted to ask, uh, and you've already, I think, covered a lot of this um, in prior answers, but in the last kind of five years, you know, with your experience working at all these different product organizations that you've been part of, what have you really learned as like a leader um, from those experiences that you could share? So uh, apart from working within this organization, also had uh, the great fortune of, you know, coming as a consultant from the outside and, and 
you know, sometimes, you know, CEO says, look, can you just come and look at my product organization or how product works with engineering? I, I sense mm -hmm. that it's not really working well or, or how product should be working with go to market. Right. And, and I think there are some patterns that emerge over time as you work with more and more of those companies. And some of them I've, I've, you know, I've evidenced and experience on my own, but some of them I, I just see as I work with these different companies. And I think that it falls down into probably the following. One is how was, who founded this company? And when I say working with companies, it's startups, right? Then either Series A, Series B, that's usually the companies that I work with. Who founded the company? If it's a very technical founder, usually you have all kinds of patterns that go together with that. If it's as a business founder, then you have all kinds of patterns that go together with that. If it's a, um, and these are the two, I would say, main founders that I worked with uh, up to this point. From a technical perspective, usually it's very focused on the technology. Solution comes first, then you figure out what's the market <laughs> for that solution. <laughs> um, and you go through all, and then also it's a very engineering heavy culture where there's not enough, I would say, investment into discovery and into validation efforts. It's more like, um, let's build something, ship something, and mm -hmm. the faster we ship and the more we ship, uh, we can validate things once they're out in the market. And in certain aspects, it's true, but in certain aspects, it creates all kinds of, you know, I would say user experience debt and other things. Um, so I think that's like one element um, within the, the technical founders side of things. And within that many times, it's uh, the product itself evolves organically, I would say, almost like reactively, not proactively. So you may see one part here, one part there, one part there. It's not really standardized. There is no coherent, consistent experience across the different facets of the product. And it's because of Conway's law, right? Because we had three teams, each one working on a different side of the product. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the user couldn't care less who worked on what. They just <laughs> want an end-to-end -end experience. So that's another like um, downstream effect that happens uh, from there, um, on the other end, I would say, right, from a business perspective, um, some founders, not everyone, and some are amazing and very attuned to the technology needs, but many times it's not having the right investment into the infrastructure layer, right, and the technical debt, and how do you grow that over time, and how do you make sure that the core is strong, even if it's not directly visible to a user or to a customer, right? Yeah. So I think that's like one element to it. The second is, um, again, we hear from one customer. So, yeah, we have to build this. Why? Because this customer said so. Um, how many customers do you have? Hundreds. And you listen to one to build this like big feature. And, okay, go and validate. This is actually a market need. And how do you triage that? So, And I think, I think product management in general is maturing. right? And I'm very happy I'm, I'm saying that. But 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Right, um, I think product management still had to fight for its place around the decision-making table. Right, the the senior executive leadership team. Today, it's all, almost like a given. You need a VP product. You need a chief product officer um, as part of these companies. And I think um, having them in place, being the connective tissue between the business side and the technology side, and you know the experience side or the design side is really vital in building su successful products, but also monetize them and making sure the business is viable. 
while making sure that the technical side is you know taken care of you know and we're not over engineering but we're also you know attending to what are the needs are as as the company grows mm-hmm. no, that's very true and i think the part about you know what kind of founders technical versus sales is so bang on i've seen such different conversations take place with uh a lot of our clients where they're just totally oblivious to some of the technical uh, decisions that need to be made or the technical debt, as you said. So very, very true. Um, next question I have is, um, when you, when you've been working in these companies, I'm sure you create some, you know, each, each company is unique in many ways, but how do you create benchmarks around success? Like how do you know if you're doing well? within that organization from a product perspective and how do you determine like the areas that you need to improve so o- over time i i developed a what i call a product audit very similar to a financial audit where you have a benchmark from the outside and then okay. you compare right and you see if you are adhering to that yes or no and i think it's it's broken down into three different elements one is around the people do we have the right people in the right places do we have any major glaring gaps there that prohibit us from making the right decisions and pushing towards building the right products. The second, it's the product itself. Well, what's the level of maturity product that it, you know, everybody says we hit product market fit. Is it really true? <laughs> <laughs> and what happens after we hit product market fit, right? And if we're before that, then where are we on that journey towards that? And what are the intentional investments we put in place into that? And Maybe we have a diversity of products like the example I gave before, but it's just not creating cohesive end-to-end experience for, for customers. So where are we there as well? And the last piece is around the process. So if we have the people in place and this is the product, how do we connect the two together? First, within the product management function, but even much more so, it's between the product engineering and design in you know most companies, but then also between this trifecta and the rest of the company because you will continue to have pressure from sales and from CS, right? And you need to find a way that you can, on the one hand, satisfy short-term needs, but don't jeopardize your long-term plan and strategic goals, right? To build up a really successful product and have that in place. So each one of them is broken down into probably like, you know, 10, 15, 20 focus areas and questions. And then the, the product audit, basically, you know, I, I come in and, and ask the, whoever I, I've been hired by, usually the CEO, what are you most like concerned about? What are you challenged by? What are you trying to solve by me coming in? Mm-hmm. And I think by that, then we, we calibrate where I should index on. And then it's a two-week process, very, very quick, again, using a lot of the anthropological methods it's a semi-structured interview process with access documentation and that goes back you know by the end of week one already with here are some initial hypotheses that allow me to then double down on what needs further i would say validation or exploration in week two mm-hmm. that provides i think a good understanding of where that organization is while i i try always to say okay co- when i compare your organization to other comparable organizations, I think that's where you're really strong at and you should like definitely recognize that within your team. But here are some areas that you know you should definitely grow because I think it's almost like a relatively low effort and high impact opportunity to really like drive better decision making and as a result better execution, better 
everything else and deliver better products to the market. I, I think any product leader going into any organization should do this exact same thing that you're talking about, doing the product audit, really aligning with the leadership team, understanding like what are you concerned about? I think that's like the best question I've heard <laughs> in a long time. It's I think every CEO needs to be thinking about what keeps them up at night, right? Yeah. What are they concerned about? Um, that would be great if, um, I mean, if, you know, if you're always open to sharing this product audit of yours, I'm sure the audience <laughs> would, would love to uh, have a glimpse. But um, um, just a couple more questions for you, um, Aran. I wanted to ask, and this is kind of a, maybe a fun question, but what is, um, what is a, an example of a product-related experience uh, that you you had that you will never forget, um, yeah. good or bad? Yeah, I, I think the first time I used Kindle, many, many years ago. I lived in Israel, and access to to books in English was, you had to order and cost lots of money, and you had to pay taxes, and until it got shipped to your house, you forgot that you even wanted to read that book, right? So having that immediate access to kin into like an ocean of knowledge, Mm -hmm. That was just, for me, it was like mind-boggling, really, really mind-boggling. So I think that's like one element. I think also, and I really like always, every time that someone says, oh, you just, you know, great products are the ones that are like Steve Jobs' iPhone. I say, yes, these are definitely great products, but there's <laughs> also another category of great products that are not visually compelling, right? And we, we need to recognize them as well. And I think Kindle, especially in the early days, was a very ugly, <laughs> sorry to say that, product, was, huh? but it, del again, delivered so much value that no one could care less about how it looked like. And, and I think that's, that's one of the, the core things that I, I always try to focus on within product management is, are we creating disproportionate value? Mm -hmm. Are we truly doing that? Is there a true differentiation here? And if so, then users will be much more patient around the experience and how visually compelling it is and everything else, right? So. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I just want to get two more questions in, okay? Give me short answers if you want. Um, my first question is, as a product leader, you're making tough, you know, tough choices, tough decisions all, all the time. Where do you go uh, to get advice or guidance. So I'm, I'm, I always found, and it's uh, even in my personal life, I, I read a lot of social theory, a lot of social theory that uh, social theorists are, are, are always have been the place where I go to ask questions and get answers. They're indirect, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of mechanisms a lot of you know so daniel kahneman that's an example right the Nobel laureate anthony giddens in sociology and clifford geertz in anthropology and i think a lot of what they write is about human nature and how we make decisions and trade-offs and, and i think that has been super helpful to me that's one element and the second you know I, i'm very blessed to be part of a larger peer group Okay. Of great, great people, right? That I can pick up the phone and say, what do you think about this? And they go like, are you crazy? <laughs> You're thinking about this completely wrong, right? And so having, having that as well has been very, very comforting as well. Okay, perfect. Thank you for sharing that. Um, last question, and then um, we'll wrap up here today. Um, 
how, oh man, I don't know how to put it. How, how, how do you find another version of yourself? Like, how do you spot the next Iran? Like, what do you look for in those candidates um, in your company or, you know, externally when you want to hire them? So first of all, I, I don't look for another version of me. I think one is enough. <laughs> I, cr- <laughs> I create a lot of bad things as well, not just good things. But, but more seriously speaking, I always, always over-indexed on diversity of opinion, diversity okay. of backgrounds. I think that's one of the things that I learned over time, that if you just hire more people like you, then th- there's not going to be any really fertile conversation. Mm-hmm. The things that I do look for right across the board is intelligence, and curiosity, growth mindset in the sense that they're they have strong opinions but they're open enough to to change if they see evidence and they want to learn right and experiences and people who are naturally um, they're, they're capable of asking difficult difficult questions in a way that is not controversial right. That's a skill, yeah. That's a skill, and I think some people, and that's fantastic to have on teams, right? And have those people. Okay, perfect. Iran, thank you so, so much. That was awesome. Uh, Lots of great insight. Um, For sure, I think everybody's going to really enjoy this this specific uh, recording, so thanks again. Um, For everybody listening, tune in next time for another... Uh, product innovation series uh, episode Um, so stay tuned